Welcome to this special recording uh, for the New Model Advisor uh, podcast. Uh, my name is Will Robbins. I'm the editor of New Model Advisor. Uh, I'm delighted to say I'm joined today uh, by uh, my boss uh, and CityWire's uh, executive chairman, Lawrence Lever. So why uh, am I joined today by Lawrence? Well, this year is the 30th anniversary of a, a huge financial story, a huge financial scandal. Uh, the Barlow Clouds Affair. Now, uh, Lawrence was instrumental uh, in helping uncover the details uh, of this scandal um, and uh, he's going to explain to us uh, what happened uh, and go through the story. So, uh, Lawrence, yeah, start from the top. What was the Barlow Clouds Affair? Well, the thing about Barlow Clouds was in its day, it was a huge financial scandal. It involved what was then regarded as a lot of money, 200 million pounds. Obviously, today's scandals, that's regarded as peanuts compared to LIBOR. But it was 18,000 private investors who'd lost their money. And crucially, the government had given Barlow Clouds a license to operate. So the government was on the hook because this is, it had allowed what was basically a massive fraud to be perpetrated on private investors who so, then complained through their MPs, mm -hmm. it became a parliamentary issue, and in the end it led to two government investigations, and the government, and it's totally unprecedented, agreed that they would pay compensation to the investors of £100 million, which more or less made them intact. Wow, so not just so the government sort of allowed things to, to continue, or them to, to give them licences when they shouldn't have had these licences, but had it... Had it uh, you know, warned uh, Barlow Clouds before? Had there ever been any sort of dialogue between them? Yes. I mean, the thing about Barlow Clouds, first of all, why Barlow Clouds? There was a chap called Peter Clouds who right. eventually was sentenced to 10 years. And there was another lady called Elizabeth Barlow who had been his business partner and actually his partner in life as well for a period of time. Um, uh, who wasn't involved. So the business was called Barlow Clouds. It was originally based around Manchester. Mm. And essentially, it claimed to be able to produce huge returns from government stocks, from gilts. Okay? And, um, and that's what it did for many years, but it operated without a license. Now, in those days, if you wanted to operate, you needed a license from the Department of Trade and Industry. Right. You know, it's the equivalent now. You know, you need a, you need a license from the FCA. Except, you know, the DTI was woefully unprepared and undermanned and ill-equipped to do the job of licensing anybody. Essentially, you gave them 500 quid for a non-returnable deposit, and that's more or less it. There were one or two other things. So when Klaus was operating at the beginning, the DTI had four people to cover the whole of the country, then it had seven people. But the, the thing about it was, it was a small-time business until it appeared on Moneybox where it got massive publicity for the things that Peter Klaus was doing, mm. and that turned it into a national business. Now, what happened was it was advertising these huge returns, and there were a lot of people who could tell that that was wrong. You know, there was no way it could produce returns like that. So, for example, uh, um, the, the number of people then warned the government, or, or the Bank right. of England, or the Treasury, about this business saying, how can you possibly allow this business to continue? A, it doesn't have a license, because it didn't at the beginning, yeah. and B, it's offering impossible returns. As it was becoming seemingly yeah, successful. Yeah, so, so in a way, the, the role of intermediaries with Barlow Clouds mm. is quite interesting, because on, on the one hand, 
because clouds didn't sell direct to the public generally. Yeah. It sold through intermediaries. On the one hand, there were certain intermediaries that pumped huge amounts of money into Barlow Clouds. But then there was another group of intermediaries who were warning the government and trade bodies that this business was essentially a fraud. Are these, are these in, like advisors that would... Yes, I mean, I, I, I wrote, and in the end, I ended up writing a book on it and I refresh my memory this morning of some of them who were warning. So Peter Hayes, who used to run a business called Plan Invest, right. he was a very articulate advocate. He even warned his MP. Uh, John Scott and Partners, they warned. Uh, Adrian Collins, who's the, now the chairman of Lion Trust, mm. he had a lunch with the DTI and said to them, he said, look, it's not, it's not instinct that this is wrong, it's maths. The, the figures don't add up. Wow. There was a trade body called NASDIM, that um, uh, run by John Grant and a chap called uh, uh, Robin Hodgson. Uh, uh, there was a very uh, 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 punchy advocate for closing them down called Geoffrey Poynton. Yes. So there were a number of people who said this business is a fraud. Now, of course, you might ask, why did the DTI in the end actually give them a license? Mm. And, and I think ultimately looking back is they were scared of the consequences, what would happen if they closed them down. So they forced the firm to get top accountants, the firm got top lawyers, and they pursued a policy of what they called in those days as legitimization. Rather than close a business down, make it legitimate and give it a license. Managing the situation. And what they hadn't really appreciated, this business was fraudulent from the start. There was no real separation between clients' money and Peter Klaus's own money. And when it eventually came out, it, you know, he was spending his clients' money on the most egregious things. Yeah, what sort of... So yeah. he bought a yacht from Tina Anassis for $2.5 million, clients' money. He bought another yacht for a million dollars, clients' money. He bought two powerboats named after his wife, Pam 1, Pam 2, clients' money. <laughs> he would take private jet trips all over the world, you know, clients' money. And think nothing, 12, 13,000 pounds on a private jet. I even found one... It's a sort of slightly trivial one, but he'd, he'd flown, his wife had flown to uh, Jersey. And you have to fill in a form to say, why have you taken this private jet? And she put one word, lunch. So the clients were paying for her to fly to Jersey and back Must have been lunch. a good restaurant. Chateau in the south of France, jewellery companies, a brewery. Basically, clients' money was used by Klaus for his lifestyle yeah. and for his other business. So can you give me an impression of how long this took, you know, from when it became mainstream to things, you know, finally falling apart? Basically, I think from the, when it appeared on Moneybox in 82, it took off and it was closed down in 88. So there okay. was, there was um, I mean, it had existed beforehand on a small basis, mm. I think going back to 78. Oh, wow. Okay. But the real growth of that business came after 82, got up to 200 million and, um, and it was closed down in 88. What you also need to appreciate is that he very cleverly had a business in the UK, which was kind of looked okay. I mean, there were, you know, there wasn't, wouldn't be a business that would survive the FCA, but the real fraud was taking place offshore when he had a business client's money in Gibraltar. Mm. Some of that hasn't changed, I suppose, these days. But uh, I mean, what, some, some fascinating details there. For example, you know, you said that you, know, you had uh, intermediaries, advisors um, trying to blow the whistle, uh, while I guess other, others were sort of piling their clients in. I mean, what, those, those people who were investing their clients in this, what was it? Was, it, was that malfeasance, recklessness, ignorance? I, as best I know, no, uh, I mean, lots of advisors were closed down as a result of it, mm. but no advisor was ever charged. Okay. So 
Um, I think I would put it at ignorance, but also what you need to appreciate is that with a number of these advisors, there was a wafer-thin separation between Klaus and those advisors. So they would, um, they would, they could put virtually all of their business was Barlow Klaus. Right. So essentially, they were de facto an agent of Barlow Klaus, right. but pretending to be independent. And there was two of them, one in Stockport and one in Surrey. And essentially, they promote it as a product for older people. You can get a yeah. high income in your old age through these Barlow Klaus products. They were called Portfolio 80, Portfolio 60. And they offered a guarantee. They offered a guarantee, you know, you get your money back, whatever. Capital is guaranteed. Who's behind the guarantee? Barlow Klaus, which was a kind of schmucky, fraudulent business. With, was it so so the advisors, those advisors tended to be... Um, I would say they were more ignorant, but also Klaus played very generous commissions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I, again, I would say there were lots of advisors who would not touch Klaus with a barge mm. pole. Also, he came very, very close to buying a, a big advisory firm in Harrogate. Oh, wow. And um, on the day it was due to complete, um, a DTI investigation came out into Barlow Klaus and that scuppered the deal. So Klaus wanted, he wasn't stupid. and. I'm not saying there are exact parallels, but this business of controlling distribution, you know, which is now going on yeah. here. Um, uh, Klaus wasn't stupid. He wanted to control distribution himself yeah. you know, for the purposes of really kind of keeping the money flowing into his fraudulent business. Because what kept Klaus going so long was that he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. He was, you know, so long as there was client money coming in, it didn't matter if there was stuff going out the door into his personal pocket. Well, that's a straight out Ponzi, Ponzi scheme. It was. It was a complete fraud. Well, I want to, uh, the journalist in me definitely wants to, to find out a little bit more about your investigation. But just on, while we're on this sort of regulatory point, you know, um, the world I'm, I'm sort of writing about at the moment, we have the F, FCA, you know, that the, the, the carried on from the FSA. We've got a compensation scheme. Yeah. Now, there was no compensation scheme in those tell, days. Yes. No, very limited. Tell me how. I'm really fascinated to know what happened and how did this change or was part of the series of events that then then shapes the regulatory, what we call the regulatory landscape now? I think you know, the change was already happening. You know, the financial services bill was going through. Right. It was recognised that the DTI licensing system was a rubbish, inadequate <laughs> system that would never work. It was recognised. There'd been uh, um, uh, government inquiries by uh, the former... Prime Minister Harold Wilson, the Wilson Committee had produced one, and then famously Professor Jim Gower had produced a report on investor protection. And it was absolutely clear the DTI could not do this job. And that was led to the creation of what in those days was called the Securities and Investments Board, the SIB, right. which is now kind of the equivalent of the FCA. So the SIB morphed into the FSA, which mm. morphed into the FCA. But there were also satellite regulators under the SIB. So SIB okay. was the daddy regulator and the children regulator was IMRO for asset management. Right. And there was a Lautro for life assurance and unit trust companies. And there was another one for intermediaries whose name's Fimbra okay. for intermediaries. So it was going to change anyway. Uh, and actually, one of the very first acts of the SIB was to close down Barlow which right. was good. So right. that was regulation oh, wow. working. Yeah. But also, you've got to understand, the SIB had legal immunity. You know, NASDIM, which really wanted to close them down, was a trade body for intermediaries. Yeah. And had discussions and hearings about could they close them down or could they close down certainly the intermediaries who were putting business their way. 
had no, you know, it had no legal immunity. So, yeah. you know, Klaus et al. and the intermediary, you know, top lawyers, you know, they were scared. I mean, they did their best, I think. So, but once the SIB came into play and got the report from, you know, there'd been a private investigation going on, uh, you know, they acted and they closed them down pretty quickly. And the, uh, the, the investors were compensated? So, it, yeah, so what sense. happened was basically, uh, um, uh, slightly immodestly, I was able to reveal <laughs> a lot of the government warnings. Right. Because uh, people like Jeffrey Poynton and Peter Hayes and Adrian Collins came to me and said, this is what has been going on for years. Adrian Collins said, I had lunch with the two DTI inspectors, I told them. You know, so, and because it had become a political thing, mm. this was, you know, ministers had approved the license of Barlakas. It wasn't just an official. It was, because, it's, you know, everyone understood it was a problematic business. It had been rubber stamped by ministers. And then these old age pensioners who had lost their money all complained to their MPs who complained in Parliament. And it was, you know, it was clearly a government cock up. So what point did, did you come in then? I answered the phone at 9.15 on a Friday. I can't believe I was working that late for the Times um, to get the phone call from um, Barbara Conway, the late Barbara Conway, who was the press officer for the SIB, said they closed down a business called Barlow Klaus. Barlow Klaus wasn't well known in those days. So that led to the story and then I started getting whistleblowers. Right. So Geoffrey Poynton and others said, look, you need to appreciate the government has failed here. They were given warnings. And of course, the Times had great appetite for this. So yeah. front page splash, government was warned. Then somebody um, uh, called up to say, Do you, you need to understand Bar Peter Klaus has been shredding documents right, left and centre for the last nine months wow. under the nose of the DTI. So yeah, next During, from, during the investigation? During the, the private investigation, yeah. The private investigation, yeah. sorry. And, the, yeah, the, the, meaning, private meaning. It the DTI had had a quiet investigation for about six months, right? Okay, which nobody knew about, and the inspector—I can't remember who was working upstairs or downstairs—but basically, let's say the DTI was working upstairs, and Klaus was shredding the documents wow. downstairs. Wow. And a lady who worked there rang up to tell us that, and then he—he he was arrested shortly after for destroying documents. And then more and more stuff came my way about the government warnings, and we built this amazing picture, essentially, which in the end I turned into a book, of how many times the government had. Been warned. Now you may well ask, you know, why didn't they take action? And one of my conclusions of the whole thing is when you have several different regulators involved, information falls between the cracks. So with the with the um, with Barlow Clouds, you had the DTI licensing unit, you had the DTI Companies Investigation Branch, you had the HM Treasury were involved getting warnings, the Bank of England had warnings, the London Stock Exchange had warnings, the Jersey regulators had warnings, and somehow or another, nobody in the centre said, I want to take complete control of this information flow and get a single picture. And information fell through the cracks, which is really why it was one of the main reasons it was able to keep going for as long as it would. And now, of course, you have a centralised regulator. I mean, Barlow Clouds wouldn't last a second under the current regime. Mm. That's good to know. What, so, what, so what was your first story then? First story was the closure. Was the closure. Then, but, then, um, but then I guess my first scoop on this was, was the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the warnings, the government right, warnings. Yeah. And I think that turned it into a parliamentary thing. Because yeah. we published the story on the Friday, I think, saying the government 
was warned. And I was talking to Tony Blair in those days. Tony Blair was the uh, Labour, he was in the shadow cabinet. Oh no, he was, he was the Labour spokesman for trade and industry. <laughs> and I was briefing wow. Tony and Tony was asking questions in Parliament Brilliant. about it. He wasn't elected to the shadow cabinet. And I remember that because in one of my meetings with him, he was interrupted by a phone call. And he goes, yes, 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 oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. And he put the phone down and he turned to me and he said, you know, Lawrence, I don't know why people say they're going to vote for me when I know they're not. <laughs> and he was standing for election to the shadow cabinet. Oh, so Blair yeah. raised it and I was feeding him. But it was, you know, all the other papers got onto it. And it was clearly a government failing. And that led to Lord Young, who was then the head of the DTI, mm. announcing an inquiry called, it was headed by Sir Godfrey Lacane. And, but it was only an inquiry into the facts. And frankly, it was a bit of a whitewash. Right. And, uh, but um, Young had the foresight to say, OK, I've had this inquiry. It sort of exonerates us, he said, which, which I didn't think it did. And everybody didn't think it did. Right, but right. I'm passing it on to the ombudsman who can do a proper, the parliamentary ombudsman, okay. Sir Anthony Richard Barraclough. And he, it took over his department. I mean, they had to have, bring in special staff. I think it took 13 months and dozens of people. But basically, he came out with a report that showed conclusively the government had been to blame yeah. and recommended a £100 million compensation. That's how they got the money back. Wow. So, what, yeah, what did things... Uh, Given the severity of this, of this, and the pub, obvious publicity, and you had several big stories out of this, uh, big articles, big front pages, did what? What were the what were the after effects? And I know you said some things were in track anyway, but uh, you know, did things get better? Are things, or just more, you know, more longer you know, term? You know, I think I, I was, as, as I knew I was going to speak to you, I was remembering that not long after this, maybe nineteen. 90, I got married in 91, and I'll tell you how I remember this and why I'm mentioning it. So in 91, I made another film, this time for Thames TV. <coughs> it's a series called This Week. And the film's called Carry On Conning. And why Carry On Conning? Because although the Financial Services Act had come into place, and the SIB existed, and the satellite irregulated, there was still a huge number of frauds going on, which we thought were going to be stopped by the regulators. But they weren't. So there was a smaller one. It was called Dunsdale Securities. It was about seven million. Same sort of thing as mini Barlow class. But then there were these kind of appointed representatives of life companies, big brand name life companies, would appoint some schmuck to be his representative. It was more or less a villain. And he'd sell loads of stuff. And they kind of washed their hands of it. So no, it's not as he's appointed representative. And um, so I made the film Carry On Conning. And I remember that because I needed the money to go on honeymoon. And I remember <laughs> collecting my payment from terms to being cash and taking it straight to the travel agency. Um, so you made the, you, made, actually, you, you mentioned that film. Um, I think uh, before we started recording, you were actually recounting another incident uh, on, on film. Uh, there was during your investigations into Barlow Clowes. Uh, do you not, did you not do, doorstep him? I did doorstep him. So in the end, I ended up making a film about the, the scandal and was, I, so I chased later. him down the road. He was actually, at that stage, he was uh, facing uh, charges for fraud right, and conspiracy. Okay, right. and, uh, and I wrote the book and I made the film on the basis that he'd be convicted, which I thank, see. thank God he was, because it was about four years' work. <laughs> and, and of course, I was under pressure to get him on camera 
by then he'd stopped talking to me. He'd long stopped talking to me. I'd, whilst I was at the Times, I was able to go and interview him in his house with his wife, and I, found, I bumped into the shredding machine at one point at night, and he laughed and said, that's public exhibit number one. And I got a lot out of him then, but then as soon as he could tell that I wasn't going to be turned, he stopped talking to me, and then oh. he got charged. And we made the film, and we had to get him on camera. So what, during the trial, we doorstepped him in... And, um, yeah, yeah, no, we waited for an hour for him and we were all desperate for the loo and finally he came out and I chased him down the road and he was talking to me all the time because he couldn't stop talking. That was, it was great for that point of view. <laughs> you know, why wasn't the money put into guilt? And he was shouting at me and I was right. scared he was yeah. going to hit me because he got very angry. And um, he was sort of sideways onto me, looking at me. And in the end, you know, he went slap bang into a lamppost and banged his wow. head. <laughs> and the and the guy with the bong, the fat the the sound the bong, tripped up and hit him on the back of the head. But we got we got him on camera and we got him talking and and it featured in the in the film. And funnily enough, these days I do talks to schools for an organisation set up by Robert Peston called Speakers for Schools. Oh well. And I tell them, you know, some of the history of it and I show them some I show them the clip of the doorstep, <laughs> which they always the oh, kids they like. They always love someone falling over. Brilliant. Well, you don't see him falling over, but you can <laughs> you build a picture of him being a villain and wow. see him on yeah, camera, you yeah. see him getting course, angry. And, but at the end of the day, you know, the tragedy of Barlow, one of the tragedies of Barlow Klaus was although by and large the investors got their money back, these were old age pensioners and roughly five or six hundred of them died mm. before they got their money back. And You've got to imagine the devastation of these people. They had put their money in an organisation or through advisors they trusted, and suddenly it was gone. And some of them were so embarrassed they didn't want to tell their children. They used to hide their faces from the camera. Um, there was there was a law firm involved, a lawyer called Anthony Gold, by Alexander Tatham and his partner David Pine, and they were very very involved in gathering the investors together, like you see now. Yeah. They got yeah, investors' yeah, yeah. action to group. They were yeah. very effective, very effective. So. You know, there were a number of people, and there was John Dyer, who chaired the investors group, who were very effective in campaigning for this compensation. And it was justice. It was absolute justice. But, you know, as I say, you know, the trauma of it for ordinary private investors, yeah. I, I wouldn't like to think. It's amazing. We still, you know, we still see these sorts yeah, of things it's today. Tragic. It's tragic. It tends to be, I mean, Barlow Clouds in its day had quite a presence. My observation now is quite a lot of the businesses that, I mean, I guess the thing that, the, the comparable for me is not the same, obviously, or anything like it. There hasn't been criminal prosecutions, but I rang the FCA up about Arch Crew. Dan Grote was writing articles about yeah. Arch Crew. Nobody knew whether, we couldn't really get to the bottom of what was going on, where the money was invested. And I'm proud to say we wouldn't take their adverts. Okay, but that still took a long time, and I think it was yeah. even more money than Barlow Klaus. So I'm surprised it still does go on, but you still get yeah. fringes of the market, and you still get gullible people who, you know, they, they, they just lured into it. I think people call it greed. I, yeah. don't, I think it's unfair on the investors. You know, you've got sophisticated criminals who just understand what buttons to press. And I think there's still... You know, the, the tragedy of it is we do have a much better regulation, which, which was, you know, you can't do it. Barlow Klaus was advertising all over the national newspapers when it didn't even have a license. You know, that just would never happen now. Yeah. OK, you can't be hidden in plain sight like Barlow Klaus was. But still there are these kind of fringe, the funny sips, the... Yeah. We, some life fun, settlements. And yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. I think life settlements, maybe we should... Not sure you put it in this. I wouldn't put it in the same no. category, but... 
some of those SIPs, you know, there was a story we legaled last week. Was it sort of a bogus wind farm? You know, it still yeah, goes yeah, on, yeah. but it's much more at the fringes. I think uh, certainly advisors, um, you know, what you, talk, you spoke about is the whistleblowers, um, still frustrated, perhaps, that, they're, that, that the good, some of those some quite decent advisors don't get listened to enough by, by the regulators. Plus, they have to pick up the bill. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. the ridiculous thing about it, is, you yeah. know, here the government picked up the bill and they were the right people to do it. Arch crew, if it was the right people, I'd say the FCA, never mind, obviously Capita as well, got to stick their hand up. But I think the FCA as well has got a lot to answer for, but it's got legal immunity. There's a compensation scheme. They can put it on somebody else. Yeah. They'll always be at the fringes, I think. Anyway, thank you very much, Lawrence. Thank you. It's a uh, for, good, good trip down memory lane for me. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Good. Thank, thank you, very you much. well. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.